Over the last three weeks, we've been looking at the application of salvation. As we consider that in the larger scope of the doctrine of salvation, and Will has taught us over these last three weeks, um, he's, been, he's hit on three areas. The first one was the effectual call of God, and that is where God grants those whom he elected before <clears throat> the foundation of the world to be saved, the ability to respond to that gospel call. So that's the effectual call of God. As the gospel goes forth, God grants those whom he's elected before the foundation of the world to hear that word and to believe it. It doesn't mean that the elect will believe it upon the first hearing of the gospel, but they will eventually believe it because of God's purpose. Uh, It cannot be thwarted in that situation. And that call that goes out actually creates the ability for the believer to respond to that call because of the fact that God regenerates us. He causes us to be born again so that we're awakened for the first time to the reality of of who he is, who we are, and the beauty of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished on our behalf. And when we become aware of this, we repent and believe the gospel. Also, gifts that are given to us by God. So salvation is a gift from God from beginning to end. Uh, Upon that repentant faith, we are converted. That's what Will went over last week. And when we look at that, we think of our our wills are activated to see the heinousness of whatever it is that we were trusting in to be made right with God, to turn totally away from that, and to trust solely in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's where we have been with the effectual call, regeneration, conversion, and that brings us to the next step in the application of salvation, which is God's response to that repentant faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, his declaration about us that we are righteous in his sight, that we are justified. So as we begin this lesson, I want to ask you a question. What would you say is the most important question in the world that needs to be answered. Just throw that out there for you to chew on for a second. What's the most important question in the world that needs to be answered? Anybody want to? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's massively important. Think of the implications that that has, right? Who is Jesus? Your, your answer to that question is going to determine a lot, right? And I think if we went out and we surveyed people and we asked them that question, you'd get all kinds of different answers, wouldn't you, right? But I, I think the most important question that we see permeating off of the pages of scripture is this. How can a sinful man be righteous in the sight of a holy God? How can a sinful man be righteous in the sight of a holy God? At the end of all the answers that we can come up with, and a lot of those are good ones that we need to think through, I think this one is the most important because this is the one That will matter on the last day, right? 
how can God look upon a sinful man and declare him righteous? Now, before we give quick answers to that question, we have to remember the character of God, right? Before we just say, well, he'll, he, he's going to forgive, right? He'll forgive the sinful man, uh, which is true in part. But on what basis does he do that, right? So we, we want to push past just simple answers and look at Scripture to try to wrestle through this reality of who God has revealed himself to be, right? In the character of God, we see that God is holy and he's just, and that creates a problem for sinful man. He can't overlook the sin of mankind. He, he can't just sweep our sins under an eternal rug, so to speak, right? Because he is holy and just, he must deal with them. And that issue is at the center of the doctrine of justification. Now, when we talk about justification, there's more than one way that people have tried to define justification. And so this is massively relevant, a massively relevant issue, and it's vital that we understand what the scriptures teach about this. If you don't have a handout, just raise your hand and Al will get one to you. As I preached about a couple weeks ago, uh, this issue of justification was at the heart of the Reformation. And the reason for that is because there were two definitions of justification that were being proposed during that time. One was the Roman Catholic doc doctrine of what's called infused righteousness. The other was the Protestant, and we would say biblical, doctrine of imputed righteousness. Okay, so you had infused righteousness and imputed righteousness. Those were the two systems upon which men were saying you can be justified in the sight of God. So let me just briefly explain what those are before we dig a little bit deeper into this. Simplistically speaking, infused righteousness is seen as a process of being justified before God. Rome would say that it begins with the initial sacrament of baptism in which guilt is removed from the sinner. And at, at, at that point, through, the, through baptism, righteousness is infused into that person. Now, what they would say is, of course, that's been merited by Christ. That righteousness that's infused to this person has been merited by Christ. And so it's, it's a gift from God. It's given to that person. But here's, here's, here's the difference here. That righteousness then is sustained and increased by the believer's good works throughout the remainder of their lives. Okay. So God starts the process. He infuses the righteousness through the sacrament and then through the other sacraments that Rome has. You keep that going. So at the end of the day, righteousness falls upon you. It depends upon you. And if at the end of your life you haven't reached a full state of righteousness, whatever that might mean, then you go to purgatory to have your sins purged for however many years before you can get into heaven. 
you can see why, if you've had any discussions with people who would hold to this system, they have zero assurance of salvation. And they shouldn't have any assurance of salvation if that's what they're, that's what they're holding to. So again, this system, this, in this system of justification, the believer is made righteous by cooperating continuously with God's grace. Okay? So that's why during the Reformation you have statements like grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. It wasn't that they weren't saying that it's there and it's necessary, but it's not sufficient in and of itself. Now, on, on the flip side of that, so the reformers are protesting and they're saying what we see in scripture is what we would call imputed righteousness. That is a righteousness that does not come partly from within, like infused righteousness, but wholly from without, totally outside of us. It's an alien righteousness, which means that it comes to us and is imputed to us or credited to us. That's what imputation means, to credit something to someone's account. So our righteousness is not our own. We wear it like a robe. It's a gift from God, and it's given to us. God justifies us, the reformers were saying, not by infusing righteousness into us, but by pardoning our sins and by accounting and accepting us as righteous, not for anything done in us or by us, but for Christ's sake alone. So in this... What we would say is the biblical understanding here. Justification can be defined this way. It's a one-time declaration by God about us that we are righteous or just in his sight. And that, that declaration that God makes about us, it's a legal declaration. If, if you've heard of this terminology before, you may have seen people, it's, it's a forensic declaration, which means it's a legal declaration. It carries courtroom terminology with it, that term justification. And I think we see evidence of this by what is said in Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34. If I can get somebody to read that for us up on the screen here. Okay, so to condemn someone is to declare them guilty, right? The opposite of justifying them, which is to declare them righteous. So we see this, this courtroom language when we hear this phrase, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? There's this, this prosecuting attorney mindset that you have in this statement. And obviously, this is a rhetorical question. The answer, no one, being implied in this. Based on the fact that God has already made a declaration about his elect. Who's going to come and overthrow what God has declared? He's declared you righteous. So who's going to come in and say that you're not righteous? Who's going to bring any charge against it? And then this is massively important. We'll get to this in a second because he links it to the death of Christ. 
Justice has been satisfied. There aren't any more charges you can bring into the courtroom. There's no guilt here because Christ has been treated as the guilty one already. So we see the same type of of legal language being used in Proverbs 17, verse 15. Somebody can read that for us. Okay. Now, that is packed, <laughs> that, one, that one verse there. I want you to keep that in mind as you read this next verse. He who justifies the wicked, in particular, that first phrase there. Think about that. He who justifies the wicked, I'm just going to take that, is an abomination to the Lord. Okay? He who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Now, watch what Romans 4, 5 says. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. So, so you have in Proverbs 17, 15, this, this reality of the one who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, and yet you come over in Romans 4, 5, and, we, and, and here's our confession. We believe in him who justifies the wicked. How is that... How is God not an abomination unto himself in that statement? The gospel. The gospel explains how God justifies the ungodly and does not pervert his justice in the process. How he does not become an abomination unto himself. It explains how he can declare us righteous in his Site. And, and probably the text that deals with this most explicitly is Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. If you're familiar with Romans up to this point, Paul's been on this inspired mission to show how all of mankind, both Jew and Gentile, are condemned in the sight of God. There, there's, he gets to the conclusion of this and along with a number of other Old Testament passages that he packs together, there's none righteous. No, not one. And after he paints this dismal picture that coincides with reality, he launches into what some have called the greatest paragraph in the Bible. Verses 21 through 26. So let's read that and see what it says. Somebody can go ahead and read that for us. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, thanks, Will. This paragraph answers the question of how God can be just in declaring the ungodly to be righteous. Or to say it another way. How he can declare the unrighteous righteous. Notice here that he doesn't overlook our sin, right? 
that sin deserves judgment. He can't pass over it as the text shows us here, right? In his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. That's a problem. Why? Because he's just. He's got to deal with that. All the sins of the elect of God up to the point of the cross were overlooked or passed over. They weren't dealt with sufficiently. They were dealt with sacrificially, but we know that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. They were only temporarily covered. So how does that happen? And then what about before the sacrificial system was set up? What about all those sins? God can't overlook that. And so here's how the scriptures answer it. He puts his son forth as a substitute and punishes Jesus for the sins of his people. That's how he does it, right? He puts forward his son as a propitiation, as a wrath-bearing, wrath-absorbing, wrath-exhausting substitute. And death was necessary, a propitiation by his blood. Somebody has to die for the sins that God's people have committed. God's justice will not permit it to be overlooked. And so Jesus comes and he drinks the cup of God's wrath fully. He totally drains it. And in so doing, the justice of God is satisfied. And we're able, therefore, to receive justly a declaration of righteous about us. That's how God can look at you and say, you're righteous. It's because of this right here. That he might be, notice verse 26, that he might be just. I haven't overlooked sins. I've dealt with it on my son. And because of the faith that I've given you to trust in him, I can justify you. Because everything's been paid. All debts have been canceled. Justice has been satisfied. And I can look upon you with favor. That's amazing. I hope we never get over that. Right? It's easy. I've read this passage a million times, right? I hope it never escapes our wonder that God justifies the ungodly and how he has ordained to do that. Now, when we think about the declaration of justification that God makes about us, the scriptures show us two aspects of that, of, of how he does this. And we've seen some of it here in this passage. But first, it's pictured in a way that our sins are removed. They are forgiven. They're taken away from us. They're taken off of our account. In speaking about justification in Romans 4, Paul is inspired to quote David from Psalm 32, and he says this, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So we're we're blessed because God is not counting our sins against us. But the question that we want to ask again is, what what does he do with those sins? And this this is a great opportunity when you're talking to people about the Lord and you're talking about forgiveness, because a lot of people can get to that point of understanding, okay, I understand I need to be forgiven and that God forgives press beyond that and say, but, but how does he do this? How does he forgive? He can't just make a declaration about you that you're forgiven and not deal with those sins. Those sins have to be paid for, right? Because he's just. 
And so Colossians 2 is a great passage that deals with that. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having, now watch this, having forgiven us all our trespasses by, so here's, here's how he's able to forgive you, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Okay, so there was a debt that stood against every one of us, and God has canceled it, and in so doing has forgiven us, but how? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So this record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, Paul envisions here as God taking that record of debt and not just crumpling it up and throwing it behind his back and saying, you're forgiven. Because then he's not just. He hasn't dealt with those sins. He takes that record of debt and he pictures it as being nailed to the cross, which is Christ bearing the wrath of God for those, that record of debt that you, that you had. So the scriptures are replete with this type of terminology of how God justifies the ungodly. Another great passage here is Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. If somebody can read that for us. Okay, so notice, notice back here. Go back to verse 1 here. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay? So that verdict of guilty has been taken away from us. But then go down to verse 3 and watch how God did it. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. What, what could the law not do? It could not present us righteous in the sight of God actually just does the opposite. It, it pronounces us guilty in the sight of God. So God sends forth his son, and he does what the law could not do, present us righteous. And how does he do this? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So you go back up to verse 1. There's no condemnation for you now because Christ has been condemned already in your place. So that's, that's important to see when we think about justification. And then Galatians 3, verses 10 through 13 is another passage that hits on this, if somebody would like to read that for us. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who, who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Okay, so there again you have that aspect of how we're justified is by God taking our, our lives of rebellion against him and charging that to Christ's account. So Christ redeems us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us, okay? Because cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. If you can live a perfectly righteous life, you're good. You don't need Jesus, but you can. 
because you're sinful by nature, and so that's going to manifest itself as soon as you have an opportunity to express it. And so Paul says in verse 11 there, it's evident that no one is justified by the law, right? Christ has satisfied the justice of God. Okay, go ahead, Des. exactly right yeah and it causes you to deal with them or else you're like that man in James 1 you look at yourself you see what you look like and you walk away and you forget what you look like right so yeah good good point so just these passages along with many others help us to see the reality that our sins are forgiven but they're not overlooked so that's that's important to understand but punished on Christ at the cross, and thus God maintains his justice in forgiving us. So that's one aspect of justification, is the removal of our guilt, the removal of our sin, the removal of our state of condemnation that all of us are in before God. But think of this. If God simply removes our sins and punishes Christ in our place, forgiving those sins, and doesn't do anything else, That essentially puts us in the same position as Adam was in before he had done anything right or wrong in God's sight, right? So so here's Adam created and then tested. Don't eat of this tree. You can eat of any of the other trees, right? So he had done, right? He, He hasn't walked in righteousness yet, but he hasn't sinned yet. That's essentially where we're put when we have those sins removed from us. We need righteousness to be accredited to our account. And so it's important that when we talk about the death of Christ, we never minimize the life of Christ that was necessary to secure and earn for us a righteous standing in the sight of God. In fact, without a life of righteousness, his death would be meaningless. And so I want to just look at some passages that speak about the importance of the life of Christ for our justification. John 8.29, this is Jesus speaking. He says, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Now, this, hopefully in your mind, it connects back to what was said in Galatians 3. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So the opposite of that is, blessed is the man who walks in the law of the Lord, who who fulfills the law of the Lord. And this is what Jesus is saying. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He alone can make that statement. Nobody else can make that statement, right? None of us can say, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Not even for an hour, right? In thought, word, and deed. 
But Jesus alone can make this declaration. And here's where the beauty of justification just shines off. That perfect life of Jesus, I always do the things that are pleasing to him, is counted to us. So that God now looks on us with the account of Jesus as he looked on Jesus with our account to him. I want to look at another passage here in Romans 5, and we're going to spend pretty much the remainder of our time on this, on this verse. And we're going to come back to this uh, in a few weeks when I do the lesson on union with Christ. But, but I do want to discuss it for just a couple minutes here because this passage really puts into context the necessity of Jesus' perfect life. Okay, Romans 5, 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. And who is that referring to? Adam, right? Okay. So one act of righteousness, and that one act is referring to the totality of the life of Christ. One act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Notice this. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Okay, So, so we, we have Adam and Jesus functioning as covenantal heads. Right, Adam is the head or the representative of all humanity. And Jesus is the head of the new humanity. All those who by grace are looking to him alone to be found righteous in the sight of God. So, so this, this passage is just packed full of the reality of I need this one man's obedience to be counted to me if I'm to be found justified in the sight of God. But, but before we kind of unpack that, let's go back to the garden first because what happened in the garden is the reason that we need to be justified. God created Adam and placed him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. He was told that he could eat of every tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if he did eat of that tree, he was told that he would surely die. Now, what's important to see here, and I don't mean this to be you know, just like, well, of course we know this, but Adam, think of this, is a living being. He's created in the image of God. He's a living being, and yet what we see in this account in Genesis is that there existed a, another tree in the middle of the garden along with the forbidden tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that was the tree of life. Why that's important is because Adam, he's alive. What does he need a tree of life for? He's not in a state of dying because he's not yet sinned. And yet here we have this tree of life in the garden. What we conclude from this, listen, is that this tree held out a quality of life not possessed by Adam as he was 
created. Otherwise, the tree of life would be meaningless. Now, this new quality of life symbolized for us by the tree of life is defined in Genesis 3.22 after the fall. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also. So he hasn't eaten from this tree yet. Unless he take also of the tree of life and eat, and notice this, and live forever. That's massively helpful for us. So, so Adam, in his created state, had not yet attained immortal life, eternal life. You may have heard this described in terms of this probationary period that God had set forth for Adam to test him to see if he would obey. And he was tested. God gave him a command. And he failed. And in so doing, he failed to attain eternal life for himself and his posterity, his offspring. And I think that's what Paul is getting at in Romans 5 when he puts Adam and Christ into comparison here as these federal heads. Adam was tested and failed. And you feel the result of that. But here's the glory of the gospel and why justification is so beautiful. Christ was tested. He comes as the last Adam or the second Adam. And he succeeds. Adam comes and he fails. And he doesn't take us where we need to go. And that is into a state of righteousness and eternal life with God for all of eternity. But Jesus comes along as the second Adam, the last Adam, and he does that for us. He earns eternal life for all his people. He comes and he takes his people where Adam failed to take them into life eternal. And this is why the life of Christ is so important for us to understand regarding our justification. I hope you focus on the life of Christ when you think about the gospel. I, I, he's got to come and earn my righteousness because I don't have a righteous standing. If sins are merely taken away from me, that essentially puts me back into the state that Adam was in. I need righteousness to be credited to my account. And so Christ comes and he earns for us the righteousness that we need to stand in the presence of God for all eternity. And it is unchangeable. It's immutable. It's done. It can't be reversed. His testing is over and he succeeded. And that means all who are in him have succeeded and been given the gift of eternal life that he earned for us. That's the beauty of justification. So you have the death of Christ, the necessity of it, the life of Christ, the necessity of that. And I started in reverse order because we typically focus more on the death of Christ, but I wanted to highlight the life of Christ there as well. And then the last thing I want to mention about our justification is that the life and death are not 
the only important acts of Christ that secure this standing of justification for us, but also his resurrection. Look at what Paul's inspired to say in Romans 4, verse 25, but I'll back it up to verse 22. It says this, that is why his, referring to Abraham, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses, and then notice this, and raised for our justification. The resurrection of Christ, put simplistically speaking, there's so many things that the resurrection of Christ says, but the resurrection of Christ, simplistically speaking, is God's declaration that both his life and his death are sufficient for his people to be counted righteous in his sight. That's God's declaration. I'm totally satisfied with what my son did. He never sinned or he'd still be in the grave. And his perfect life attests to that reality. So the resurrection is proof that God was totally pleased with the life of Christ and his sacrificial death to take all of our sins away from us. So hopefully you can see why this doctrine was at the heart of the Reformation. Without this doctrine, we don't have any hope. We go back to a works-based system of righteousness without it. But with it, what confidence we have as we stand before God, this, this declaration that God has made it about us is as unchanging as God himself. And it's meant to give us great assurance as we consider our standing before God. Christ died for us, therefore our sin has already been condemned. There's therefore now no condemnation because Christ was condemned already. We have nothing to fear in that regard. And Christ lived for us. Our righteousness has been secured by his perfect life. And again, this this doctrine, I pray, is something that we would take time to meditate on often. Because as we do, our understanding of the love that God has shown us in Christ will go deep. It, it, it will begin to answer what Paul prayed for the Ephesians in Ephesians 3, that we might know the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ that he has for us. And as we meditate on that, our hearts will be stirred to fervency in our proclamation of it and to uphold it. Amen. Okay, we're done a few minutes early. I did have a video clip that I was going to try to show, but I wasn't able to figure out how to splice that up and and get it ready. So, any comments or questions? Al, yeah. Yeah, Galatians 3. I'll back up to that. It just reminds me of my Jewish friends and folks like Ben Shapiro yep. who believe that the Messiah is not right. a physical, it's not a sort of son of God. It's just 
Yeah. Right. Yes. Even the law makes it clear that, that, the, that what it says now that it's evident. So through the law, it's clear yes, that's right. That, uh, that, that, uh, that curse be everyone who does not buy in all things in the world. That's right, exactly. Right. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. And, that, and that's a great talking point to go back to that and, and to discuss with people the necessity of perfection, right? Because we say you need to be perfect and, uh, well, show me a scripture that says that you need to be perfect on the side of God. This is a great passage to go to, right? If, if you're going to be found righteous in the sight of God, if you're going to be blessed, yes. right? You have to abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And that, that's got to be your record for your whole life, uh, which, which we know it's not, right? I mean, so the law is given, as Desmond mentioned, as that mirror to show us we're born into that state, inheriting that sin from Adam. The law shows us the reality of that and points us away from ourselves to Christ, at least it ought to. Um, and so, yeah, that's a, that's a great passage that you can go to to help people to see. Here's what God requires from you. Perfection, if you're to stand righteous in his sight. Um, can you attain that? Right? No. Um, yeah. Yes. Oh, okay. Go ahead. We'll go Lucy and then Ryan. Ladies first, Ryan. Yes. I was going to say, so would it be theologically accurate to say when Adam was created, he was neutral? Well, theologically, we wouldn't say neutral. We would say that he was upright, because Ecclesiastes 7 says that, that God created man upright. But what we see in the garden is this aspect of testing, and, and this is why theologically theologians have said it's a probationary period. Not that you see that in scripture, but you see the implications of it because Adam's given commands and he fails to pass that test, so to speak. How, how long that was, we don't, we don't know. But we know from what's said in Genesis 3.22 that if, if he was to eat of the tree of life, he would live forever. So he was not in the state of immortality at, at that point. And then also when you get into Revelation, you'll see this. Um, Often it's referred to, and I will give him the right to eat from the tree of life, right? And so it harkens back to what's said in Genesis 3 of this aspect of this living forever. And that's what, that's what God is testifying to us. The one who overcomes, I'll give the right to eat from the tree of life. I'll give the right to live forever in my, in my presence. So a, a state of neutrality is not how we would want to say it, that he was created upright, but he was also tested by God, um, during that time, he, he had the ability both to sin and not sin. If we looked at Augustine did a good job of kind of breaking up what, what that looked like. Um, but he failed in that. And this is what Paul essentially brings out as he looks at the life of Christ and as he looks back to the garden at the life and testing of Adam in Romans 5. And he compares those two and says, here's where you are. You're either in Adam and if you are, all die or you're in Christ, and you will live if you're, if you're there. Was it uh, Romans 8? Was that the one? Okay, because I, I don't think I had Romans. Well, yeah, no, I'm sorry. Romans, let me... Was it that one right there, Romans 5, 18 and 19? 
Oh. Oh, okay. All right. Well, so, something happened. Well, praise God we got through the lesson. Um, Romans 5, 18, and 19. Yeah. Ryan. Yes. Yes. That's right. That's right. Yep. Amen. Yeah, he sees himself for who he truly is. Yep. Will. Yes. How much does he just kind of like not look at us all? Well, he, he loves us in the sense that he sent forth his son to come and live and die for us. Thus, you know, right? So God demonstrated his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the love of God for us couldn't be any greater than it is. And the fact that he's given us the righteousness of Christ is a demonstration of that love. So taking that account and saying, I'm giving it to you at the expense of the life of my son, and I now see his account where your account was, and I take your account and I give it to him and punish it. Um, so certainly he, he sees his son's account, but it's on our benefit. It's for our benefit that, that Christ came, or else he could have just left us in a state of, of condemnation all awaiting certain judgment, um, but he displayed that love. So I, I think it's very real. The love, well, and John, I can't remember the exact verse, but in John where it says that the love that the father has for the son is the love that he has for us, which is just, I think it's John 15, 9, maybe. Um, so the, the love of the father to the son is the same love that he has for, for his people. So yeah, it, it's not just like, I love my son and because you're in him, I love you too, but I, I really don't love you. So, um, yeah, I mean, he couldn't display it any greater than, than he does. That love that he has for the son, he has for us as well. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's that, you know, everything that we do obviously is not pleasing to God, right? We're still battling this sinful flesh. But the account, the declaration that is given to us is that we are righteous. And so we'll, we'll kind of get into this when we talk about sanctification as well, whereas in justification, you have this one-time dec declaration that you are righteous. Sanctification, you're being made righteous in the sight of God because of what you've already been pronounced as. Um, so certainly, sin is going to continue to taint everything that we do, and yet at the same time, because of the work of Christ, it's acceptable in the sight, in the sight of God. Um, but we won't be free from that completely until that last, until that last day. So, okay, one more pedo, and then 
I'll close. Yeah. Right. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Right. Right. Yes. Yep. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Good stuff. All right. Good. Good thoughts here. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, we thank you again. Um, for the opportunity to talk about this doctrine that really does um, become the article upon which we stand or fall. If we, if we get justification wrong, uh, we are in error. We will go into error in so many different ways. And so thank you for this uh, time to look at your word together, to, to rejoice afresh in the reality that you declare the unrighteous righteous without violating your righteousness, but upholding it through the work of your son, his, his life, his death, and his resurrection. So I pray that you would strengthen our hearts, help us to meditate often on it, and help us to be fervent in our proclamation of it. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.